We're reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks very much, Catherine. I was a little bit worried, actually, when when Will was reviewing that book. I I thought he was going to say, if Andrew's sermon doesn't quite hit the spot, try pure sex. But fortunately, he controlled himself, which is part of what the passage is about. Let's pray. We're handling interesting, dangerous and powerful things. Father, we've sung that your love endures forever. And we know how often our human passions can last just for a very short time. So we pray this evening as we come to your word that you would protect us from Uh, the weaker parts of ourselves, and yet parts that are very precious too. And that you would teach us from your word how to live as sexual people, for Christ's sake. Amen. Church, not very far from here, some years ago, um, programmed a sermon with this title. It was a similar subject to what we're dealing tonight, but their title was, Who Invented Sex? Afterwards appeared the name of the preacher, who happened to be a very godly, uh, late, middle-aged spinster. Not perhaps the person you would immediately imagine to have invented sex. I am indebted, uh, though, to Catherine Collins, who's here this evening, I think. I think I saw Catherine here somewhere. Are you here, Catherine, to be embarrassed by me? I'm not sure. She's somewhere, hiding out there somewhere. I'm indebted to Catherine for this joke. Uh, to introduce my sermon tonight. I don't know how long she had to troll through the internet for it, but she found it for me. God created children, and in the process, grandchildren. To those of us who have children in our lives, whether they are our own, 
grandchildren, nieces, nephews or students, here is something to make you chuckle. Whenever your children are out of control, you can take comfort from the thought that even God's omnipotence seems not to have extended to his own children. After creating heaven and earth, God created Adam and Eve. And the first thing he said was, don't. Don't what? Adam replied. Don't eat the forbidden fruit, God said. Forbidden fruit? We have forbidden fruit? Hey, Eve, we've got forbidden fruit. No way. Yes, way. Do not eat the fruit, said God. Why? Because I am your father and I said so, God replied, wondering why he hadn't stopped creation after making the elephants. A few minutes later, God saw his children having an apple break and he was furious. Didn't I tell you not to eat the fruit, God asked. "Uh Uh-huh, Adam replied. Then why did you, said the father. I don't know, said Eve. She started it, Adam said. Did not, did too, did not. Having had it with the two of them, God's punishment was that Adam and Eve should have children of their own. (laughs) Thus the pattern was set and it has never changed. If you have persistently and lovingly tried to give children wisdom and they haven't taken it, don't be hard on yourself. If God had trouble raising children, what makes you think it would be a piece of cake for you? Thank you, Catherine. Two things emerge from the story. The first is, and you don't need me to tell you this, the first is that, it's, that we would seem that we are wired to break the rules. And the second is that we are created in the image of a creative God, and he has created us to multiply. In other words, to be creative, and as this sermon is about good sex, he has created us to be procreative. And judging from the number of people who now populate the earth... This is one thing that mankind has been pretty successful at. We have imaged God successfully in that way. Sex is fun, thank God, but it is also essentially and primarily even about the production of children. And although that is in a sense a controversial thing to say these days, I think it's important if we can have a biblical perspective that we don't forget that. That God invented sex as the way of multiplying human beings and thus having dominion over the earth. Sex is primarily, of course it's not exclusively the case, but is primarily about having children and families. And of course we're quite good at it locally here as well. From time to time uh, people in the evening service uh, seem to get pregnant and they disappear to the morning service. Today's pregnant lady at 6 p.m. is tomorrow's new family at 9.30. Well, we're doing a a course, as you know, on Christian discipleship, and this evening it's that time to consider what we're to do with our sex drives. Normally I try to delegate this to my youthful curates, but uh, alas, the the lot fell upon me this time, and Will's not as youthful as he was three years ago anyway, so... uh... (laughs) but he he might be losing his wife to the 9.30 at any minute by the look of her anyway, so anyway, there we go. But let's be clear about one thing. Uh, Let's be clear about one thing straight away. God invented sex. God invented sex. 
Before they ate the apple, Adam and Eve were told to go and multiply. Before they ate the apple. And since they were both naked, and since they felt no shame, I assume that they pretty quickly got stuck in. There's no indication in scripture uh, that they were doing it by planting gooseberry bushes. Absolutely no hint of that at all. Indeed, in Genesis 2, we're told that sexual intercourse pre-fall, pre-fall sexual intercourse, recreates original one flesh Adam from whom woman had been taken. From the beginning, God intended men and women to make love to one another, to be unashamed in their lovemaking, and in doing so, discover something of what it means to be in the image of God together. So this is a sacred thing in the Bible. It's not a toy. It's a sacred thing. But of course, the Bible is full of sex. Everyone seems to be at it at one time or another. Of course, there are notorious examples of sexually active people. Noah got into a spot of bother. Jacob's kids were pretty wild. Samson and Delilah might have got an adult rating. David's lust for Bathsheba was his undoing. Hosea had a bit of a nightmare with his wife, and so on. We could go on and on. There's plenty about sex in the New Testament too, the woman caught in adultery, for instance. And we are told that even Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but without sin. So that must have included, in his humanity, sexual temptation. Remember also, lest you think uh, that the Bible is writing into a world that is completely different to our own, remember that society under the Roman Empire was very promiscuous indeed. One historian of the time has written this, the cities of Greece, Asia Minor and Egypt had become centres of the wildest corruption. There's probably never been a period when vice was more extravagant than it was under the Caesars the Bacchanalian orgies and the like. Each generation, you see, tends to think that they have managed to achieve a slightly, degree, a slightly greater degree of wickedness, of illicit pleasure, of sexual anarchy than their parents' generation. And of course, as we get older, those of us who are parents and grandparents, as we get older, we delight in tutting and claiming it was not like that in our days. It's shocking how all these people live together, blah, blah, blah. The result of this, of course, of feeling like that, and um, Charlie Colchester, who used to work with CARE, helpfully pointed this out to me this week. The trouble is that young people, many of you here, often feel not only misunderstood when it comes to sex by older people, but much worse than being misunderstood, you feel condemned and judged by those who are older. And therefore you stop listening. Of course you do. How easily... We, older ones, become pharisaical hypocrites as we get older and forget what it was like to be young. Ah. (laughs) Now, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to, to recent converts to Christianity. He wrote the letter in 51 AD, and he wrote to Thessalonica from the notoriously wicked city of Corinth. And he wrote to people who almost certainly had had many and diverse sexual experiences before they were converted. So he's writing here a radically new standard to people who had tasted the apple. So do not suppose for one moment 
Do not suppose for one moment, whatever puritanical view you may have inherited or been brought up with, do not suppose for one moment that sexual sin is the unforgivable sin. However condemned old hypocrites like me make you feel, sexual sin is forgivable. It is forgivable. And most Christians, perhaps all Christians, all through society, have been required, God has been required to forgive them for sexual sin. Otherwise we couldn't go forward. Sexual sin is not unforgivable. But please also heed this warning that Catherine read to us from 1 Thessalonians 4. It is as though God has put you behind the wheel of a very fast Ferrari. I was going to say McLaren, but he came 12th, so I thought I'd better go with Ferrari. When I was 18, and on my first sort of grown-up cricket tour away, a much older teammate had a Ferrari, and I was immensely impressed, obviously, that he had a Ferrari. And one night, to show off, after he'd had a few beers, he took me and another youngster for a spin. We left the digs where we were staying at enormous speed in this Ferrari, We got about 200 yards, and he drove straight into a wall. Your sex drive is a Formula One engine in you. It has the power to enrich your life enormously, and it has the power to destroy your life. Paul knew that for his beloved young Christian believers, this could could easily be the make-or-break issue, And it may well be that it's the the make-or-break issue for you as well. Will you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, be the master of your sex drive? Or will you be mastered by it? That's the question. Will you, with the help of the Holy Spirit, be the master of your sex drive? Or will you be mastered by it? Well, let's look at what uh, Paul says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And actually, there are one or two quite tricky bits of translation here. I'm not going to go into it in detail, just uh, quickly refer to them. Uh, I think the, I'm going to try and bring out the overall message of the passage. But for instance, where it says, uh, uh, verse 6, in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. There is quite a bit of discussion about precisely what the translation there means, whether Paul is saying, uh, that um, you shouldn't wrong your brother in, and it's a reference to homosexual physical relations or whether it's a reference to you shouldn't wrong your brother by sleeping with his wife. And so the commentators disagree about that as to what specific sexual sin has been referred to in that particular verse. That's just one example there. But as I say, I think that the overall message that is coming out of here is, out of this passage is clear and I want to make three points which I hope you'll find helpful. There is, of course... Much more than can be said in one 20-minute sermon and uh, many books that you will find helpful. But I hope these headings will help us a little bit. Firstly, therefore, live to please God and not yourself. Live to please God and not yourself. Verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. 
for you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. The Bible teaches from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21 that it pleases God, and if that is the intention of your life, to please God, it pleases God most when a man and woman live together in lifelong love and affection, bringing up children in the safety and security of a loving home. Now let there be no doubt about that. That is what the Bible teaches and that is what pleases God most. I'm not even going to take you to any of the numerous Bible passages, although I have referred to the Genesis passages already, to evidence that, because you can look those up for yourself. That is the clear teaching of Scripture. To to, to deny that, to claim that the Bible teaches something other than that, is to misread the Bible. That is the bar that God has set for us. That is the standard to which we are to aspire. A lifelong union of a man and a woman in which children are brought up in love and security. But of course we know only too well that it does not always work out like that. Sexuality in fallen, sinful human beings is a highly complex affair. This powerful engine is sometimes badly out of tune. Or it is souped up. Or it backfires. Or it's low on gas. I'm getting a bit carried away with my illustration, actually, a little bit. But uh, sometimes, sometimes the car has to sit in the garage for years, perhaps even a whole lifetime sometimes. The engine never gets started at all. I've got to be a bit careful with the illustration, but you see what I'm saying. One thing is for sure is that not everyone is the same. All the researchers indicate that. The Kinsey report, for all it produced, produced, showed that there is a huge spectrum of sexuality and sexual appetite, degrees of sexual appetite in human beings. We're all different. And some have crashed and been badly damaged. In pointing to Paul's guidelines here, I do not wish to underestimate for one moment the complexity of the situation for many, many people. It is a complex situation. But what Paul and the Holy Spirit set before us is this aim, that in this area we will live to please God. We will aim for that bar, even though it seems very high, that is the aim. Let's not compromise that. Let's be clear what it is that pleases God and what we're aiming for. So if point one is to live to please God and not yourself, then point two is also there in in verse three. Avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that that you should avoid sexual immorality. Do I need to dwell on this? Surely you all know what I mean. A Holy Spirit influenced conscience and reading scripture surely informs us, if we're honest with ourselves, what this Greek word, porneia, sexual immorality, means. Sexual immorality, in whatever guise, whether it's premarital or extramarital sexual intercourse, whether it's homosexual acts, whether it's internet porn, whether it's dirty books or films or magazines or whatever else turns you on, All these things claim to enrich our lives. 
Most advertisements on television, most TV programs will sell, will sell to you that if you are not engaging in some sort of pornea in its broadest understanding, you're missing out on life. To experience life to the full, you need to be sexually turned on and active. Let me tell you, on the basis of what Scripture says, that that is a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. It is, as one preacher has said, a lie with smoke on it. A dodgy prawn may look very nice, and actually it could taste nice, but a dodgy prawn lays you out for days. Getting into sex outside of God's way is much, much more dangerous than a dodgy prawn. (laughs) Jesus has come that we might have life. He's come that we might have life. And when when the devil says that life is somewhere else, he's lying to you. Jesus has come that we might have life and life in all its fullness. Trust him and his word for life. Do it his way and live is the constant promise of Scripture. Now let me assure you that every one of us will have had struggles and failures in this area. Every one of us needs forgiveness, as I said earlier. But with the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the exercise of our God-given free will, we can do better. We can progress towards a moral Christian life. You can learn to control your body. You can stop wronging your brother or sister, by leading them astray. You can, and as a disciple of Christ, I would say you must aspire to live a moral sexual life. That must be your goal. Don't lower the bar. Don't compromise it. Don't make out that what God has said is immoral is really okay, because, of course, we love each other, don't we? Grow up in Jesus. I was very uh, helped at the... um, Frontier Centre where we were staying, somebody picked up this latest edition of the uh, UCB Bible uh, study notes. They're called uh, Hope Extreme. They're written for teenagers. And it happened to have a page on how to say no to sex. Someone said to me, I think you're preaching on sex tonight. You might find this helpful. And it is quite helpful. How to say no to sex. Five points. Let me just share them with you very quickly. How to say no to sex. That's what we're trying to do here, okay? Make a firm decision ahead of time before you wind up in a pressure-filled moment, decide well in advance that you aren't going to have sex until you are married. Otherwise, you might get caught up in the moment. Make a firm decision ahead of time. Secondly, avoid boredom. Make sure you plan what you are going to do when you are out on dates so that you aren't left asking the question, what should we do now? Good practical help. Three, go out in groups. When you're around other people, you're less likely to do things you'll regret later. Four, put real love first. When someone starts, I thought this was really good, when someone starts a sentence by saying, if you love me, you'll, dot, 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 then finish it by saying, you'll respect me and not ask me to do something that's wrong for me. Very good. Anyone have that conversation tonight? Come and tell me. Get support, fifthly. It's easier to make big decisions when someone is there to support your convictions. The best supporter you have is God, and he will always give you the strength and wisdom to say no. 
My third point is really more positive. If you've decided to please God and to avoid immorality, which is incumbent upon you as a follower of Jesus, then point three, positively, verse seven, live a holy life. Live a holy life. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. At the heart of the idea of holiness is this concept of being separate for God. I'm only too well aware of the extreme countercultural tone of all that I've been saying tonight. To many in today's world, the biblical standards that I've been talking about are utterly ridiculous, totally unachievable, muddle headed, and increasingly people would say even wrong. They're life limiting. And you know very well, better than me, those of you younger than me, that that is the generation in which you live. I've just been on holiday with a couple of friends of mine who are young professional men in their late 20s and early 30s, both in fact uh, chartered surveyors. Both brought up in decent but essentially unbelieving families. Both now aspiring, they have a real passion for this, to a lifelong stable relationship in which they want to have children. They're quite clear that that's now what they want in their late 20s, early 30s. They are, therefore, normal 21st century blokes. One believes that he has found the right girl and he has moved in with her. Uh, The other is still seeking and is humorous in his banter about it. Both men were astonished that I would think it foolish, life-threatening, dangerous, and even wrong that the way to arrive at this lifelong monogamous commitment was by having multiple partners beforehand. For both of them, they hadn't even occurred to them that that might be the wrong way to set about achieving their ambition of a lifelong monogamous relationship with another woman. They assumed that that was the best way. Play the field a bit, find out, try a bit, see you like. It's like tasting yogurt, isn't it? That's the best way to find out which one you like. It came as a radical surprise to them that this was the biblical standard. So are you single this evening? Learn contentment in that singleness. While of course it may be lonely, it often is lonely. And of course childlessness may be a great sadness for you. Your singleness does give you opportunities that those with partners do not have. Be holy, says God, in your singleness. Are you unmarried but in love? (laughs) So many of you are. (laughs) Get to know each other without unleashing the full fury of your sexual longing. Sexual desire is a furious thing in the sense of being an untamed thing. Get to know each other without unleashing the full fury of your sexual longings. Leave some gears, if I can go back to that illustration, leave some gears unused until you get married. And if you have lit the blue touch paper a bit early, and I'm mixing up my metaphors a bit, I know, well, say sorry to God. Come to the prayer ministry team. There will be others coming forward who are not coming forward for sexual sin. You can't assume everybody coming forward this evening (laughs) uh, is in that situation. 
I hope that, Will, you have planted a few people out there who are definitely not uh, coming forward for that. But I am serious about that. If you feel that you've strayed across the boundary hit, you're not in an unforgivable place. Say sorry and start again. Are you in love? Be holy and wait. Be holy and wait. Are you married? Oh, well, now, if you're married, you could be in many different states in your sexual story. <laughs> in the words of Winston Churchill, never, 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 never give up. <laughs> go, on the, uh, go on the next marriage course. That would help. Be holy together. And oh yes, I haven't forgotten my sermon title, Good Sex. I did nearly forget it in all the excitement. If you're married, if you're married, have good sex as often as you both want and in as many ways as you both like. And the emphasis in that statement is not on often, but on both. I'll read it again. Have good sex as often as you both want and in many ways, as you both want. But I'm getting into deep water, so I'm going to stop, <laughs> so I'm going to stop there. <laughs>